Looking forward to our time now in the Word, and it's been a, a fun summer already in this series that we're doing called Living Parables, and it's a little bit different than our normal uh, uh, kind of approach to teaching God's Word. Typically during the school year, we kind of work our way through a particular book of the Bible, and kind of you don't have to wonder what's happening next because you're like, oh, they're going to be in the next section. And so in the summer, though, we're also uh, aware of the fact that a lot of people have different travel plans and going in different places and all that. So we choose a series that really the messages can be more standalone. Does that make sense? So if you did miss a week, you weren't going to be totally thrown off. Uh, not that any of you ever miss any weeks in the summer. Uh, but uh, in this uh, context, in this living uh, parables, we've had a chance to go through and pick different parables that we think would be relevant for this church community. And kind of the responsibility of that this week was falling on me and I was kind of working through. I don't know if you realize that, that Jesus has a total of 46 different parables in the New Testament. 46 different times he uses story to get across a spiritual point. Well, I'm working my way through those and uh, we're not covering all of them this summer, obviously. So I'm picking different ones. I was reading a few different ones. And I landed in Luke 16, and you can start turning there now this week. And as I was reading this section, I read through it. And as I read it the first time, I was like, nah, that's too intense. I don't think they need to hear that. I kept on moving in the process of looking at the next ones down the road. And uh, in that process, I had this nudge, I believe, from the Holy Spirit that he's saying, no, Scott, you don't get to skip the hard stuff. You don't get to skip the hard stuff. Just because it's summer uh, doesn't mean you get to avoid the hard truth. And really the principle is that the, relevant for all of us. So often in life, how does God grow us and shape us the most? It's through what? The hard stuff. The hard word you didn't want to hear from somebody. The difficult conversation. The difficult uh, health situation. Whatever. God uses the hard stuff. We can't skip the hard stuff. In fact, tell your neighbor right now in case this is news to them. You can't skip the hard stuff. So some of you uh, are... Uh, alerting somebody for the very first time about that. But uh, this idea, uh, it made me think of this, this uh, silly uh, thing by Garfield. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, you're missing out on an awful lot. That's kind of the idea. That's what, unfortunately, a lot of times people have that mentality of they're skipping the hard stuff. Well, this morning, we're working through this parable. I want to give a little bit of backdrop because I believe it's a, an important word for us to hear. Basically, Jesus is going through a number of teachings and all of them having a story to bring home a point. And he's just finished before our section, the first half of chapter 16, where he's been talking a parable about the wisdom of using what has been currently entrusted to you to prepare for an inevitable future. So your current resources and the current things you have, you have to think through knowing what we do know about our future. I want to make sure I use what I have now. And he uses an unusual example. He uses a shrewd, unethical manager as his example. And so a lot of people read this parable before uh, in chapter 16 are like, what in the world? Is he praising this unethical manager? He's not praising his unethical practices, but his shrewdness. He's finding examples from the current world and saying, hey, at least they're thinking about the future, even in their poor decisions. So that's what we're coming out of. And in verse 14 of chapter 16, we see at the end of that parable how some of the audience respond, some being Pharisees. It says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. 
They were lovers of money. They heard these things and they ridiculed him, ridiculed the idea as an outward speech. Like you're literally mocking Jesus after his teaching. If you've ever had a heckler, this was a version of that in the, the audience basically telling Jesus, what do you know about money and wealth? Most likely all of them aware Jesus wasn't known for having a lot of wealth during this season of his life. And so in that, Jesus then, in response to that, he's about to tell the parable we're about to study this morning. Because he wants to dispel a myth that was prevalent in that age, that people associated wealth with God's favor in their life, in poverty, assuming, man, they must be outside of God's favor. And the way that that played out was a dangerous one because they, they neglected to care for the poor because they said, oh, they must be under the consequence of God. I don't want to get in the way of the work that he's doing in their life. So that was the neglect that was seen by the religious leaders of that time. And so he's like, man, I, I got some teaching to do to help you understand that they are not connected. Take a look in chapter 16, verse 19, the beginning of our story. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. This is our first character, a rich man. It doesn't give a specific name. Tells us a little bit about him, though. It says that he wore really nice clothes. In that day and age, you're like, purple? That sounds like a bad color choice. No offense if you're wearing purple. But, uh, but the purple in that day and age was a, a symbol of wealth. You've maybe even heard this if you've been in church world before. I was reading this week a little background on that, that it would literally take thousands of rare snails to take out the dye from their whatever and use that just to make one garment. So you can see probably pretty labor intensive. And then linen, can you imagine hand making linen in that day and age? So both symbols of wealth, if you're going to think present day, like this was a legit Gucci outfit, or, or maybe this is a better picture that you have in mind of this. I, I don't know the, the purple jacket either, either way. Uh, sorry to distract you with that. Uh, either way, it tells a little bit more about him, not just a, a little bit wealthy. What does it say about him? It says he feasted sumptuously Every day, sumptuously, that's a good word, sumptuously every day. So it wasn't just a, a one-time event, not just a birthday dinner at Red Robin. This guy like was legit living the lifestyle of wealth. He was uh, every single day basking in what we're about to see and neglecting the needs around him, neglecting the needs around him. Take a look in verse 20. It says, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Second character in the story, a man, this time he's given him a name. The man, his na name is Lazarus. And what do we learn about him? We learn that he was actually laid at the gate or at the entrance of the wealthy man's home. That, that tells us a little bit of something about them. If someone's needing to be laid, most likely they had some degree of a disability where they couldn't get there themselves. He had to be laid there. And the picture is it was a strategic placement where he had the best chance of maybe getting some sort of help or reprieve from a situation. 
So in this scenario, you're not wondering whether or not the, the rich man knew about him. He had to go in and out past this man, most likely every single day. So he was aware of his situation and then not doing anything that we see here in the text to take care of it. This was a direct indictment of the Pharisees who were known for not taking care of the needs around them, as we saw even in John's parable a couple of weeks ago. Talks about his health condition, that he was included with sores all over his body. And we're told, to kind of for emphasis, the last picture there, even the dogs came and licked his sores. In our day and culture, they're like, well, that's not such a bad thing. You know, you heard a dog's mouth is cleaner than a, you know, you know, we get into all that kind of stuff. And that time, a dog lived off the streets, and that was like the most disgusting possible thing. It, calling somebody a dog was like the ultimate insult. You didn't go up to a friend and say, what's up, dog? Like, it wasn't none, none of that. That was an a, a, a insult. It clashed with that culture. It was kind of a rat of our day. And he's saying he's being licked by this. He's got sores all over. Him. This picture that he's painting is an extreme one. So the audience is coming to some kind of a conclusion. Man, I would love to be the rich guy. Man, would that stink to be the poor guy, right? He's painting that picture. He's kind of pushing them in that direction by the emphasis and all the neglect that this guy has seen and experienced and coming to judgments about somebody based on their social status. And you think about that present day. Don't we still do this exact same thing? We still see somebody, we come to assumptions, we see a big house, and you ask, oh, I wonder what they do for a living. And the response is always, they must be doing something well, right? Like, who knows? Who knows that they're not the most shady person ever living behind those walls? Uh, and the idea on the flip side, we come up with conclusions about somebody that's poor. We're like, oh, man, uh, think about some of the things, the thoughts that go through your mind. Oh, they're, they're probably just lazy. I don't know why they don't just get a job. Uh, they, they must have made some really poor decisions in their life to get to this point. They must be mentally off a little bit. They must be all the things we, they must be an alcoholic, drugs. That's definitely a drug scenario. Without knowing any of the story behind the scenes, we come to so many assumptions about people. I remember about 15 years prior to moving here, we led a homeless ministry downtown Chicago. And so often the stories, as you got to know the men and women out there, were exactly the opposite of anything you assumed. The more you got to know somebody, you're like, oh man, that was, uh, a lot of this stuff was completely outside of their control. Like a lot of things that you're like, oh man, that's just a rough go. We come to conclusions about things. Even personally, we come to, a, you're like, I don't really do that with poor people. I don't do that with rich people. Great for you. How about personally? How about personally, when we start to think when things are going bad in our life, you start associating, oh, well, where, where did God go? Why did he abandon me? Why, why, why am I not as wealthy as so-and-so? Why, why am I struggling? Why am I dealing with health? Man, is there, is there something going on? What's going on? The same thing that happened with Job. So he's bringing up this story to paint the picture, and then he's about to shock them with the statements that are to follow. Take a look in verse 22. Kind of a jaw-drop moment for the audience. It says, The poor man died... And was carried by the angel to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. 
Now, for us, we read that it's not that big of a deal, but for that audience, this would have been a what? What in the world? That's not what we would have guessed about their eternal destination based on the life that we saw them live here on earth. That, that, that would have blown. First, it talks about Lazarus. It says that he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. For the reader, this was the best way of saying he was taken straight to heaven because in their mind, Abraham was the father of all the faithful. And this was the ultimate privilege to be taken directly to be with Abraham. You know how you see those silly posts every once in a while on Facebook? You know, they have a picture of a park bench and they say, you know what, if you could spend an hour sitting and talking with anyone in history, who would it be? Like all of the people in that audience would have said, man, it's Abraham. For sure. I'm hanging out with Abraham. If I get one shot. And so this was the ultimate privilege as they're painting the picture. He's taking directly, even though he had a miserable life, he's taken directly to be with him. And all of a sudden it makes a little bit more sense why his name was Lazarus. What the name Lazarus means is the one God helps. The one God helps. Kind of a cool picture. Did you know that in all of the parables, the 46 that Jesus tells, this is the only time he gives a character a name. The only time as he's painting the picture, the only honor is giving this man a name for those who are in Christ. The honor that's on the other side of this life is amazing. It has nothing to do with whether he is rich. That didn't get him there. Whether he is poor had nothing to do with it. On the other side, we see the wealthy man. What does it tell us about him? It says that he ends up after being buried. It points that out, most likely a a funeral that was a celebration. After being buried, more formal, lots of people talking about how awesome he was and all this great stuff. Where does it tell us that he's at? In Hades. Hades, that's in most... Theologians believe that Hades was a description of the place that somebody's held before Revelations 25, where final judgment and you're thrown into the lake of fire, a temporary place. But we still see here it's a place of torment. And he's there. He's conscious. How do we know he's conscious? Because he's looking up and he's seeing Abraham off in a distance with Lazarus. Can you imagine the place of regret that that is? We learn a little bit more about it as the story continues starts with a dialogue with the rich man. And it says, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now, I don't believe that this is intended to be a complete theology on heaven or hell, but I do think it gives us some sobering clues about the absolute horror that hell must be. The absolute horror. Can you imagine? Look at his request. He's calling out to Father Abraham. What's he asking for? Man, he, he's not asking for a gallon or a, a, a water. He's not asking for a Gatorade. What is he saying? Just a tip of water on my tongue. 
Can you imagine the horror that that must be? The place of torment that you must be in where that sounds amazing. Just a drip of water. And that's where he's at. As he's painting this picture, we see all these, these uh, uh, books about the afterlife and people's experiences after they die. But this is probably the most realistic. If you're going to choose who's going to tell about it the most clearly, who would it be? Jesus, somebody that knows. He's painting a, a picture of what was happening there. And we learn some things. He's dispelling some other myths in that culture that you may not have even caught. What does the poor man refer to as Abraham? He says, Father Abraham. Abraham refers to him as child. What would that tell you about his ethnicity? This would have been a Jewish man that's died. Again, a shock factor for the audience that would have assumed that, hey, based on ethnicity, I thought I had a free pass into heaven. Similar still today, a lot of people, man, I grew up going to the church. You know, my parents were really great Christians, you know, and, and I, I'm just assuming I, I'm in based on that. You know, the confusion is still present day. Here we see a little bit of where this rich man is at, where his heart is at. You don't get any sense of repentance, remorse. There's no change that's evident. In fact, I don't know if you catch this when you read this, but when he uses terms like, send Lazarus to me. Send Lazarus. Obviously, he recognized him because he had been at his front door. There's kind of a, a tone of privilege that something is owed. He's not, Father Abraham, do you mind coming down? Hey, I see Lazarus. Send him down with some water. Still a kind of a, a, bit, a bit, a glimpse of arrogance as if something is owed him. And again, taking saying what he's, the way he's lived his whole life. It's about me and making sure I'm comfortable Get a glimpse of no change in this person. It's interesting that someone doesn't necessarily change in hell. It's the consequence of a choice that's been made. And that's what Abraham points out. He said, man, even if I, I wanted to, I'm not the one that makes the rules here. The line's already been drawn between the person in their lifetime based on their decision to accept or reject Jesus. The, the chasm is already drawn. And for people to understand that, so many people think like, oh, well, someday I'll get around that decision. Well, when we breathe our last breath, we see it directly here. The line is already determined where we spend the next gajillion years. How crazy is that? How crazy to think that the line, there, there's nothing. What we do now in this limited time here on earth will literally, as I don't know if you grew up, uh, not grew up, or it wasn't that long ago, Gladiator, remember this scene where he's standing, he's charging the, the arm, and he says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. I remember him saying that. I was like, yes, this Roman soldier gets it. You know, he, he understands even in their confusion the choices we make now does what? Determines where it is we're going to spend eternity. It's finally sinking in for this rich man. Kind of a, a, a place of desperation, I imagine. Look in verse 27, his next request. says, and he said, after he realized there wasn't much hope for himself, then I beg you, Father, to tend him, or send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced. Listen to this. If someone should rise from the dead. 
pretty powerful foreshadowing of what's to come, this dialogue. You can see why I wasn't that excited to teach on it. You know, let's talk about a conversation they have in hell. You know, this, this is the, the picture of what it is, though, this dialogue between Abraham and this poor man. And you think about it, I think through my own life, one of the things that I prefer, if I'm going to be honest, in roles with, as a pastor, one of the things I prefer is I prefer doing weddings rather than funerals. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm willing to do both, but prefer weddings. I have one coming up this Friday. But funerals can be a positive t- thing. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral of a believer and you go to that and it feels more like it's a celebration. You know, you know where they're at. You're like, they're free from all their pain. Like it becomes like a, man, this is, this is pretty cool. There's like some hope. But every once in a while, I'll get asked to do a, a funeral of someone that didn't have a relationship with Christ. And I usually would have the conversation with them before and explain, make sure I'm clear on expectations. Hey, just so you know, in this message, I plan to talk. I plan to share the hope of Jesus Christ with the group. And if they're not okay with that, then I'm not the right person to do their funeral. And, uh, and in, that, in that conversation, I was thinking about that as it relates to this, that you're really honestly able to say, hey, I'm only honoring the request that your fallen person would have if they could go back. What would be the the act of kindness for the person that's passed away without knowing Jesus Christ? What's he asking? Say, oh, if you could just go back and warn the people I love, people I care about, my brothers. I don't want them to miss it. He's he's long. He's like, man, could you go back and, and give them another shot at this? Because I don't think they understand what's at stake here. What's at stake is eternal. Here, look at their interaction. What does, what does Abraham say? Man, he's like, man, they just, need to, they just need to lean into what they already have. What does he refer to? Moses and the prophets. What's he talking about with that? Moses and the prophets. Uh, this, God's word. That the, the, all the warnings that were throughout the Old Testament that pointed to coming judgment. He said, if they're not going to believe the Moses and the prophets, there's not much I can do with them. There's not much I can change because what? It's not an issue of changing somebody's mind. It's a heart issue instead. It's the heart that's at stake here. Like, have you ever tried to talk with somebody once they're determined with something in their mind, trying to change their mind about something? I don't know if you have that person in your life and you're like, this is a hopeless effort. Maybe you're sitting next to them right now. Don't look at them now. They're going to know. But, uh, but, but trying to convince somebody once they've decided something is a pretty challenging thing. Similarly, he's saying here in this, he said they have all that they need. Scripture should be sufficient to overcome unbelief. Scripture should be sufficient to overcome unbelief. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But here, the, listen to the request, second request. He's like, well, if they saw, listen to this appeal. He says, if they saw somebody that had been raised from the dead, if they saw the miraculous then maybe they would believe. Now, what does Jesus know about this already from his own experience as he's going around doing unbelievable miracles? And what did people say? Oh, he must be from Satan. He must be doing this in the name of an evil spirit. He must be, you see people come up once they're convinced of something in their heart. It's hard to, it's hard to change that. It's hard to turn that bus around. So he points to that. He's, he said, oh man, even if someone rose from the dead. And it's fascinating that Jesus is saying that, right? Even if someone rose from the dead, they're not going to believe. See, so much of this, when we're reminded as we're feeling compelled to maybe share with somebody we love, what's at stake is eternal. 
But what's actually held in the balance is whether or not they're going to believe and what determines that is someone's heart, where it's at. That's why prayer is such a big deal. You can't change somebody's heart, but God can. Sometimes we're like, well, I don't really want to share because I don't know what to say. And you're like, no, it doesn't matter. Just stumble through it and then get, to, get busy on, on your knees praying for God to change their heart. Because that's the one hope for somebody to embrace Jesus Christ. They do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So what do we learn here? Wealth doesn't mean you're going to hell, and poverty doesn't mean you're going to heaven. But what do, what do we learn? Because you can start to think when you read this, somebody upon a light review, they might say like, oh, it seems like just the poor go and the, the, the rich go to hell. So they come to a conclusion. But do you see how that could be the exact opposite of the problem there? You're coming to the, the exact opposite conclusion. It has nothing to do with rich or poor. Do we realize that? It has nothing to do. What in this dialogue are we learning? What does it come down to? It comes to either hearing and believing and repenting, that's what he's saying. Go back, tell them so that they will hear, believe, repent. That's the same thing that it comes back to here. It's nothing to do with rich and poor. It is a nudge for sure for the rich to make sure that you're taking care of the poor and not modeling your life after a Pharisee. But he's saying, you know, it really comes down to when it's uh, ba- ba- down to its, ba- uh, its, its core. It's coming down to let them hear so that they can repent. A natural response to belief. Once you believe something, you're like, whoa, if this is true, if this is true that my sin has separated me from a perfect God and, and God came and his kindness died on a cruel Roman cross for me. And it's by repenting and acknowledging that and embracing his free gift. Man, that is what the gospel comes down to. So here in this account, you're kind of like, well, what, what do we do with this? What I noticed is kind of a, a running theme. Do you remember last week we had a, a bit of a, an urgency theme that like, whoa, we need to get after this. I'd say similar today. Maximizing conversations, same thing, same idea. Don't miss opportunities to interact with people that you care about because you know what's at stake. Also, like I mentioned, it's a little bit of a nudge for us that have resources making sure that we're not neglecting the needs around us, making sure we're, that's a, a part of our thought process. We're not going and just blazing past, assuming that, oh, they must be under God's consequence in their life. And for the non-believer, if I were to charge you in response to this, for the non-believer, here's the one simple statement. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. The guy that digs in his heels and says, you know what, I'm just going to live for the moment, live for the here and now, soak it all in, enjoy what this life has to offer, because none of that's going to matter on the other side. So humble yourself. Make the decision. What I love is the invite that our God has. Any single moment, he's saying, I'll take you. I'll take you. I'll take you. You come to me with your heart and say, yes, I embrace what you've done. He'll forgive you, redirect your eternity. Who could say no to that option? Are you kidding me? How stubborn do you have to be? So in conclusion, I want to pray over us. One for us to have just more of a drive, more of a commitment. I love seeing people as I hear stories, even in our church body. I'm not saying that we're not doing this. I love hearing story of people maximizing their relationships and conversations, thinking eternally, 
thinking about caring for the poor. I love that we have even opportunities to do that in our regular routine as a church. Uh, you guys are like, well, I don't really know where the week I can go to take care of the poor. John just talked about it in an announcement at the beginning. There's an opportunity. Next Monday the 12th, there you go. There's an opportunity to step out in, uh, in faith in that area. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for even the hard truth in Scripture this conversation that we don't necessarily want to think about on the other side of life. And my prayer is that that would be a charge for us, not in a guilt way, but in a not wanting to miss any opportunity that this limited life provides way. I we thank you for your grace, for your mercy. I love that even in your kindness, you, by telling this story, are answering the request of those who have passed that don't know you or didn't know you. God, we praise you for that, this opportunity as every single day allots as we're alive to embrace you, to have our lives full of purpose, to be led by your spirit. God, we're so grateful for your grace and your mercy. You're so good. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, I pray this was a, uh, an encouraging charge for us. I know it was a tougher topic today. If there's someone here that wants to talk about what a personal relationship with Jesus looks like, I'd be thrilled to chat with you after the service. Otherwise, we have a couple of volunteers here up at the front if you need something prayed for. Have a wonderful Sunday. Let's live thinking eternally. God bless you.